Well, brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to be with you here this morning. Um, the Apostle John talks about how he has no greater joy than to hear the churches walking together in the truth. Uh, and, and I feel that very much here this morning. Uh, you know, we're doing well uh, in Kansas City, by God's grace. Uh, we'd love to give you kind of a, a, a longer update tonight. Um, but one of my bright spots in Kansas City is just continuing to hear reports about the work that God is doing here. Um, that, that you guys aren't stuck looking at the past, but the work carries forward. Uh, love to see all these new faces here. Um, love to see that God is at work here. Um, so so th- thank you for having me with you this morning. What a joy to be with you. You know, this whole idea of kind of continuing to move forward, I mean, that's really what this uh, summer series has been about, right, here in the Song of Asc- Songs of Ascent. Uh, we continue our series through these songs. Uh, as a guest preacher, I get to come in and take the next psalm, uh, a rather unusual one. Um, as you've heard, the scholars who have looked at these texts believe that these are psalms that the Israelites would have sung on their way to Jerusalem as they journeyed there for kind of the annual festivals. I like to imagine these various psalms being sung by kind of different groups of Israelites making their way to Jerusalem. You know, Psalm 122 these are kind of the Israelites with their, like, make Jerusalem great again hats. You know, they're, they're excited to be in Jerusalem. They're, you know, they love the city. Uh, Psalm 125, these are like the Reformed Baptists. They're singing songs about God's sovereignty. Uh, Psalm 128, you've got the, the homeschool family of pilgrims. You know, they're, they're driving the 16-passenger van going up to Jerusalem. And then we come to Psalm 129. Uh, amid all the other groups, this band of pilgrims looks different. Their faces are dark. They walk with a limp. Their clothes are tattered. You see tears on their cheeks. You know, other pilgrims are greeting each other with blessings. Oh, no, these, these pilgrims are silent. They have no blessings to give. And yet, like everyone else, they are headed to Jerusalem. They're going up to the great city of Zion to worship the Lord of heaven and earth. Who are these people? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 129. Uh, If you are using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 544. Psalm 129. Let me read this for us. A song of ascents. Since my youth, they have often attacked me. Let Israel say, Since my youth, they have often attacked me, but they have not prevailed against me. Plowmen plowed over my back, they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous, He has cut the ropes of the wicked. Let all who hate Zion be driven back in disgrace. Let them be like grass on the rooftops, which withers before it grows up and can't even fill the hands of the reaper or the arms of the one who binds sheaves. Then none who pass by will say, may the Lord's blessing be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Well, like I said, what a strange psalm. Uh, just in reading it, kind of here on, on first glance, we can see, I think, that this psalm is about the reality of, of oppression and persecution, particularly against the people of Israel. The, these enemies of Israel hate Zion. The, they hate the place where God rules. And as a result, they hate God's people. We see in verses 1 through 3 that these enemies have oppressed God's people. You know, who are these enemies? The text doesn't say. Uh, In some ways, sort of the the namelessness of the enemies make this psalm timeless and applicable to God's people in every generation. And yet we see in verse 4 that God has 
repeatedly delivered and preserved his people through all their persecution. And then in verses 5 through 8, we, it kind of ends with this imprecatory prayer, uh, this prayer for God to, to drive back his enemies and to frustrate their efforts. You know, up to this point, the, the songs of ascent have dealt with all kinds of trouble that God's people face in life and God's faithfulness amid them all. But in this psalm, we get to deal with the painful reality of living in a world that hates God. Uh, we get to deal with the painful reality of persecution. You know, and this is not unique to Psalm 129. We, we see this theme throughout Scripture. Uh, the, Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, writing to the early Christians, says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal, referring to persecution, when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Well, Psalm 129 is here to help us not to be surprised by persecution. Here in 2021, do you think that the persecution of Christians is likely to increase here in the West? You know, I'm not a prophet, but I think it is. Uh, And certainly, it continues to exist all around the world today. So, so we need Psalm 129. We don't want to be surprised. We want to be prepared to suffer well for the name of Christ. Um, and, and we need to start talking about persecution even now. All right, so, so the question then, the kind of big question for this sermon is, how do we make it to Zion? Through me? It seems like right here at the outset, it's the psalmist speaking of his individual experience in this fallen world. Uh, we don't know when this song was written and what experience he's referring to. You know, oppression, when we read the story of Israel, oppression has marked the story of Israel from the very beginning. You know, when we, we read the book of Judges, I, I think of the Israelites hiding in the mountains and caves as the Midianites laid waste to the land and, and left the Israelites poverty-stricken. You know, I think of that young girl that was captured by the Aramite forces and sold as a slave to, to Naaman's wife during the time of the kings. Uh, I think of the villages and towns that were burned by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and the young men marched off into captivity and the women and children taken as plunder. You know, these stories, they, you know, we read these stories, we, we, we sort of know the basic plot line, but there are individuals in these events, right? Fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, you know, the psalmist, I think, here gives voice to kind of the individual experiences of the Israelites. Even as God is at work in these national events, God also sees what is going on with individuals. You know, I think the psalm captures that. And yet, this is not only the suffering of individuals. Uh, I think collectively, this is also the experience of all Israel. That's, that's why we have that phrase there in verse 1, let all Israel say. You know, persecution is what has marked the people of God. And whatever your sort of individual experience is, if you're a part of Israel, then you have a voice here too. Let Israel say, since my youth they have often attacked me. You know, persecution is what has marked the people of God. Uh, and again, this has been true from the very beginning. Why was there conflict between Israel and the nations? Well, it's all part of a much bigger story. Uh, Back in the garden, there was a serpent called Satan, and he deceived our first parents, and, and he waged war against those made in God's image. God cursed Satan and promised that there would be hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The serpent would strike his heel, but the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. Ever since then, humanity has been at war. The very first murder in human history, Cain kills Abel over his brother's faith. Uh, By the time we get to Israel, we see them enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. God comes and delivers them from bondage, brings them to the promised land, but they struggle to remain faithful. And then we see their enemies constantly harassing them, oppressing them, 
defeating them. Israel is always on the verge of being wiped out. Now, this was a deep source of shame for Israel to be under foreign rule. And these foreign rulers were brutal against Israel. We see, that, we see the experience of Israel summed up in this gruesome image in verse 3. Plowmen plowed over my back. They made their furrows long. Well, I'm a, I'm a homeowner now. One of my favorite purchases this past year was a rototiller. Um, I, you know, I, I want to plant grass in my backyard. The, the soil in Missouri is hard clay. And so you, you can't just like put seed on top. I tried. Um, <clears throat> so I had to use a rototiller with like spinning blades to cut and, and shred up the earth, break up the soil so that it's able to receive the seed. You know, this is what farmers do with their plow. They, they cut furrows in order to be able to plant in the soil. You know, these farmers here are plowing up the backs of God's people. Uh, the furrows they are cutting are deep and they are long. Uh, these enemies of Israel are oppressing Israel and, and not just like killing them, but they are enriching themselves from the people of Israel enriching themselves from their suffering, draining from their backs every last ounce of labor so that they can benefit themselves. You know, what I think what we see here is that the persecution of God's people can be horrific, can, can even be gruesome and even deadly. Don't be surprised by it. Right? Have a category for what's going on here. If you're a Christian, do you have a category for persecution in the Christian life? Uh, or did you become a Christian thinking that life just keeps getting better, right? All your problems go away. Do you have a category for injustice and oppression, even when you're trying to be faithful in following Jesus? Do you have a category for injustice that, that, that never gets resolved in this life? If, if not, then you need to wrestle with Psalm 129. Right? Let Israel say, uh, no matter how relatively peaceful your life might be, this is also your psalm. You belong to a people who are oppressed and under attack here in this world. Their song is your song. You know, we, we see the oppression not only in the story of Israel, but we see it most shockingly in the story of the Son of God. Uh, Jesus is the true fulfillment of Israel. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. When we read the story of Jesus' life, this is exactly what we see. Shortly after he's born, the king is trying to kill him and kill his family. As an adult, he was regularly attacked and mocked, and slandered. People were trying to push him off cliffs. His own family thought he was crazy. At the end of his life, he's betrayed by one of his own disciples. He's arrested by the government. After a, a phony trial, he's condemned as guilty of insurrection. And then the Roman soldiers tied him up and flogged him. They used this whip with, with multiple cords and pieces of metal and bone tied on the end and they plowed over his back and they made the furrows long. And then that mangled back was laid on a cross and Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. Christian, that is the Lord that you follow in this world. I think the main reason we shouldn't be surprised by persecution is because we follow a Lord with a furrowed back. Jesus told his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, I think his disciples took that to heart. According to church tradition, all the apostles except John were martyred. Paul was beheaded. Peter was, according to legend, crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was speared in India. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James was stoned and clubbed to death. 
in Syria. I mean, we could just keep going. Even John was banished to the island of Patmos and died there. And, and the history of persecution has only continued. Uh, as I've been teaching through church history this past year, I'm just struck again and again by how there has never been an age without persecution for those who are seeking to follow Christ faithfully. Right? I, I think of the early Christians gathering in secret, in, in, in catacombs and homes, slandered by their neighbors as, as cannibals and incestuous and fanatics. I think of Perpetua and Felicity, thrown to the wild beasts for their faith, these young women, even shortly after having given birth. I think of Athanasius defending the deity of Christ that we confessed even this morning against the Arians and being exiled five times throughout his life. The last time he was exiled, he was 67 years old. I think of the Waldensians in the 12th century, condemned for preaching the gospel to the poor, I think of Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin and all those who suffered for recovery of the gospel in the Reformation. I think of Lady Jane Grey and the English Protestants refusing to recant and being burned at the stake under Queen Mary. I think of those early Baptists here in America who were publicly whipped and put in the stocks and driven away from society. Think of Jim Elliot from Portland and his friends who were speared on that riverbank in Ecuador not too long ago. And church history continues to our, through our day. Here in 2021, we are continuing to live in this story of persecution. Right? Here's a news report just from this past July of what Christians are facing in Nigeria. Last week, Selina Ishaku's son was murdered by Fulani militants, the same jihadist group that killed her husband two years ago. While Selina was burying her son the day after his death, an ICC contact in attendance reported that the Fulani militants attacked once again, shooting mourners at the funeral. Selena told ICC through tears, these militants killed my husband two years ago and burned down my house. My farm was destroyed three, years, three days ago. Now my son is killed and my house is burned down again. One official says, from all indications, the enemy won't stop. It's our desire and prayer that God in whom we trust should bring an end to this as it is evident that the government and the security agencies are just as helpless as we are. Spurgeon says persecution is the heirloom of the church. It can be horrific, and yet it's during times of persecution that the faith of God's people shines the brightest. It's one thing to go to, up to Zion to worship the Lord when all is well, when you are blessed and surrounded by blessings. It's another thing to make the journey to worship Yahweh when your back is bloodied and you've lost everything. Persecution is the heirloom of the church because it's in it that we see the true value of the gospel. So what about here in the West, Portland, Oregon? Is persecution coming to us? I don't know if you've noticed, but it is increasingly difficult to be a part of Western society and hold to biblical convictions about marriage, about gender and sexuality, about the unborn, about the exclusive nature of the gospel, about the church. You know, perhaps one or two generations ago, some of those beliefs overlapped with kind of general societal beliefs. But here in 2021... We are, are living in an age where basic biblical convictions about what it means to be human, about God, about salvation, that these things are, are not just rejected, they are vilified. They are hated. These are unacceptable beliefs if you're going to be a part of normal society. If you're interested in learning how we've gotten here, 
Uh, Carl Truman has written an excellent work called The, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's, it's a really helpful work in learning, like, how do we get to this place? You know, this means that in the coming years, some of you are going to find yourselves alienated from family, from loved ones, because of your beliefs. Some of you are going to find yourselves slandered and canceled on social media and public life because of your beliefs. Some of you will find yourselves passed over promotions, cut off from certain careers, again, because of your beliefs. For, for some of you, this has already happened, right? Are we ever going to see in our lifetime some in our society imprisoned for their faith, churches closed for their narrow views? You know, I think sometimes here in the West, we can tend to think, well, I'm not being imprisoned. I'm not, I'm not being martyred. You know, so it's not really persecution like, like those in, the, like in other places of the world. You know, with that attitude, it's not long before we start to think like, you know, that's persecution. That's not, we're not experiencing that. Uh, you know, we are accepted by society and, and that's what we should expect, right? Um, no, I, I think we, we need to recognize that the default is not acceptance. The default is persecution. Uh, and... And we don't want to rob ourselves of the opportunity to identify with Christ and sharing with him in his sufferings. Right? Persecution can be imprisonment or martyrdom, but it can also be rejection and slander and insult. Right? First Peter 4, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So if you've experienced that, then recognize what's going on. Right? You are taking part in the story of God's people that we see here in this text. Now, what if you've never even experienced any of that, you know, slander or, or rejection? Well, that then could possibly be just God's amazing kindness to you. Right? That, that you have this window of, of opportunity to do good work for the gospel. And, and your experience then would be an anomaly in church history. It could be that. Or consider perhaps that it could also be that um, people don't know that you bear the name of Christ. That when people look at your life, they think that you live like them and you talk like them and you laugh at the things that they laugh at. And they think that you are one of them. So there's nothing to be offended by. You know, if you've never experienced any sort of rejection or persecution in this world that hates Jesus, that could be a red flag. <laughs> that could be something for you to think about. What does that say about your faith? You know, the goal here is not for us to go looking for trouble. Uh, rather, we need to recognize the world that we live in. Think about persecution rightly. All who desire to live godly in this life, Paul says, they will be persecuted. You know, the serpent continues to wage war against the church, so be ready for, for it when it comes. I think that corporate dimension of persecution will be particularly important in the coming years. This psalm is a reminder that when one suffers, we all suffer, right? Let all Israel say. This is the experience of all of God's people. Um, the so we only persevere as we recognize persecution together and honor and care for those who suffer in the name of Christ. Well, these pilgrims are beat up, their backs are bloody, but we see in verse 2 that their enemies have not prevailed. How do we know that? Well, because they are going up to Zion to worship. They're going up to worship the Lord. If they had rejected the Lord, if they had begun to worship Dagon or Baal, yeah, they, then that would be a sign that their enemies won. But no, they are going to Zion to worship the Lord. And that brings us to point two. Cling to God's righteousness. Cling to God's righteousness. That's what we see here in verse four, right? There's this, a really jarring kind of transition from verse three to verse four. Plowmen plowed over my back. They made their furrows long. Verse four. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the ropes of the wicked. You know, amid all the suffering that these people are going through, this is what they 
hold on to. The Lord is righteous. The wicked are cruel. Loved ones are unfaithful. The courts are unjust. But the Lord is righteous. God remains ever holy, ever just, ever faithful to his people. His goodness and his righteousness are not one bit diminished by the reality of persecution. This is what Israel clings to amid her troubles. The Lord is righteous. And Israel knows that God is righteous because he is faithful. Israel continues to persevere. He preserves his people. He has cut the ropes of the wicked. Now, I think this is a continuation of the image in verse 3. I'm sorry. Yeah, in verse 3. You know, the wicked are plowing the backs of Israel, but God has cut the ropes, the the harness of the oxen uh, to the plow. The, The wicked will not finally prevail over his people. Israel will be preserved. God sees the suffering of his people and remembers his covenant. The the psalmist here could be thinking of all kinds of stories that he's heard all his life, right? Of of how God cut the ropes of the Egyptians and and set his people free. Uh, Of how God cut the ropes of the Philistines, sending a young shepherd boy to save his people. Throughout Israel's history, she could always look back on a time when God proved his faithfulness and kept his promises to his people. And if he did that way back then, then surely he hasn't changed. Surely he can do that even now. Of course, the greatest instance of God's faithful, righteous deliverance came with the arrival of Jesus. Right? Here's Jesus, the, the promised Messiah, the perfect one who would save his people from their sins, the one who would forever defeat Satan and rule and bring all things to right. And then they condemned him. And then they crucified him. And then they killed him. And the light of the world was laid in the tomb. And yet the Lord is righteous. Satan and his minions had done their worst, but on the third day, God did the impossible. He cut the ropes of death, and he raised his son from the dead in triumph. Jesus triumphed over sin. Jesus triumphed over death. And he proved that death and injustice and persecution will not prevail. They will not have the final word. Jesus now has now ascended to heaven and he reigns over the universe. And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And now for all those pilgrims on their way to see Jesus, on their way to Zion, this is what we cling to. That through the gospel, God has cut the ropes of sin and death. And amid persecution, amid injustice, amid insult and slander, we cling to God's righteousness. We rest in the unchanging character of God. The Lord is righteous. No matter how wicked the slander that is being thrown against you, no matter how much injustice you have experienced, God remains ever good, ever righteous, ever committed to his glory and your good. Cling to this. I I think of that scene from Lord of the Rings. Sam and Frodo are traveling towards Mount Doom, death, danger, suffering all around them. And then Sam takes a look up at the night sky, and this is what he sees. There, peeping among the clouds above a dark peak high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Oh, friends, the shadow is only a a small and passing thing. God's righteousness remains untouched by all that goes on. This has to be the ground of our comfort, 
here in this world. If your comfort and your hope is, I can't wait for things to get back the way they used to be, right? I can't wait till things return to normal. Uh, I can't wait till I get justice. Uh, if that's your hope, you're going to be disappointed. Things are never going to go back to normal. Uh, there's no promise of justice this side of eternity. I recently read this biography of Herman Bavink, this famous Dutch theologian, you know, fascinating story. The most moving part of the biography actually was the appendix. In the appendix, the, the, the author talks about his descendants and, you know, his children, his grandchildren, and the writer researched their stories and, and told about how these grandchildren of Bavink saw the world change kind of before their eyes as, as the Nazis came into power. And uh, some of these grandchildren decided it was good for them to join the Nazis. But a lot of them refused because of their faith. They refused to submit. And they resisted. They, they, they worked to rescue people. And many of the Bavinks, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children, they were separated from one another. They were sent to concentration camps. And they died. It, it was kind of a sobering ending to this Biography. You know, in Revelation 6, we hear the loud cry of the martyrs, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on earth and avenge our blood? Even in heaven, the hope of the saints is that the Lord is righteous, that the Lord is holy and true and that he will one day judge and avenge the innocent blood of his people. Friends, that is the hope of the saints in heaven. Make that your hope here on earth, that the Lord is righteous, that in the end the shadow is only a small and passing thing, and that God's righteousness remains forever secure, no matter what we're going through. And as you do so then, as that is your hope, then live in this world. Right? Live not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. No matter what they say to, against you, no matter what they threaten against you, live in the fear of God. Because if the Lord is righteous, then He is righteous to judge all people, including us. And sometimes, you know, we might be tempted to foolishness in the midst of persecution. We might be tempted to get angry, to compromise. You know, Peter warns us against this. What credit is there if when you do wrong are beaten and you endure it? No, don't get persecuted, persecuted for doing wrong, right, for being a jerk. No, make sure you're doing right and being faithful. Uh, live peaceful and quiet lives. Don't provoke your neighbors. Love them. You know, there's, there's this trend in church history. Whenever persecution comes, the church is always tempted to be divided. Um, you know, the people disagree with how we should respond to persecution. There are those purists who refuse to compromise in any way, and if you, if you compromise just a little bit, you, you know, we're done with you. And then there are those who are trying to make it work and trying to think about how to contextualize their faith, and they, they accuse the purists of legalism. And in the end, the church suffers not only from persecution that's going on, but also from the division and the arguments that take place. No, no, don't do that. Here is where we need to unite. The Lord is righteous, right? Uh, we unite around God's salvation and his faithfulness to judge. Even as we have discussions and debate, and debate, the fear of the Lord is our guide and our hope. You know, let the fear of the Lord promote humility and charity. Too much of these debates in the midst of persecution end up sounding like, I am righteous. I know the way. No, no, no. If, if that is your confidence, you are not going to make it to Zion. The mid-persecution cling to God's righteousness and point others to him. Let me also say just a word to the lay elders here at Henson. Uh, because amid persecution, you lay elders have an especially important role to play. You know, the staff elders here in one sense, have it easy. Right? They work in the church office. Right? I mean, how easy is that? Right? No persecution there. You know, me and Todd, we teach in a seminary. Right? Piece of cake. 
but you, lay elders, I mean, you guys are out there. You're out there in, in government, in schools, uh, in business. The challenges that your people face are the challenges that you face. As Peter says, be examples to the flock as you learn what faithfulness looks like out there in the world. You know, be, teach and model to your people what it looks like to bear the name of Christ well. How to be wise, how to be bold, and how to cling to God's righteousness. No matter how dark our way, we confess the Lord is righteous. And finally, number three, pray for God's judgment. Having confessed his confidence in the Lord, having remembered God's past acts of deliverance, now the psalmist looks to God in his present suffering. Verse 5. Let all who hate Zion be driven back in disgrace. Let them be like grass on the rooftops, which withers before it grows up and can't even fill the hands of the reaper or the arms of the one who binds sheaves. Then who pass by, then those who pass by will say, may the Lord's blessing be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Well, this is a prayer that God would frustrate the plans of his enemies. They hate Zion. No, that includes God's people, yes. But ultimately, this is about God. Zion is the place where God dwells. This is where his king dwells and where his authority, his rule goes out. This persecution is ultimately about God. And so this prayer is not for personal revenge. This is not, you know, a prayer for for spite. This is a prayer about God's name and God's rule and God's glory to be upheld. And, yeah, this is a prayer that those enemies of Zion would be put to shame, that they would be driven back. Uh, Not only that they would be defeated, but that they would be disgraced. That the, uni- that the universe would see how utterly foolish and wicked any hatred against God was and that God would vindicate his people. Now, again, I, this is a theme we see in Scripture. I think of all the ways that we see God's enemies turn back in shame throughout Scripture. Uh, I think of, again, the, the giant Goliath, right, boasting and bragging against God's people Killed by a stone <laughs> from the sling of a shepherd boy. I love that. I, I love the story of Haman, right, plotting against the people of, of Israel, hating Mordecai. And then the king tells him, hey, I want you to parade Mordecai around town, praising him in front of everybody. And then Haman is hung on the gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. Shame. And, of course, my favorite is Jesus killed by Satan and his enemies but saving his people accomplishing his mission by that very death Satan unwittingly fulfilling all that God had promised and then Jesus rising from the dead never to be killed again let all who hate Zion be driven back in disgrace You know, in in Jesus, this is not just wishful thinking. This is the arc of history. All those who hate God, they will be driven back in disgrace. Those who oppose God will not triumph. They, They will be filled with shame on that final day. And that's what we see illustrated in verses 6 through 8. Right, Having plowed the backs of God's people, God has cut the ropes off of their plow, and now the harvest has come. What will be the harvest of this brutal farmer, of all these oppressors and their violence? Their harvest will be like grass on the rooftop, dried, withered chaff, worthless, shameful. In the end, their lives will come to nothing as they see God's people shining in glory, vindicated for their trust in Christ. In Israel... During the time of harvest, farmers would pass by one another and they would greet each other with blessings. They they would say, may the Lord's blessing be be on you. 
And they respond, we bless you in the name of the Lord. But for these persecutors who have plowed the backs of God's people, they will be cursed. They, they, they will walk around with nothing in their arms for all of their life's work. And as they walk away empty-handed, all those who pass by will have nothing to say to them. They will be cursed. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can be nervous about imprecatory psalms uh, in the Bible. I think part of the reason is because we just have never experienced the kind of hopeless oppression that many of our brothers and sisters around the world face even today. One, one writer says this, in our affluent and relatively peaceful Western world, unrelenting oppression is something most of us have never experienced. Imprecatory words seem inappropriate in the Christian era where Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. But in the face of absolute injustice and horrid neglect, abuse, and torture, the Christian must cry out. While we may never experience suffering like that here in the West, but Psalm 129 reminds us uh, that these pilgrims with their furrowed backs, they, they belong to us. They are our people, and we belong to them. <clears throat> their songs are in our hymnal, and so we can learn to pray and sing with them. As American Christians, we should be interested in the suffering and hardships that Christians around the world are facing. Um, and we should pray for them, right? Use Operation World. Use, use the Joshua Project. Visit Voice of the Martyrs. Um, <clears throat> don't be afraid to pray imprecatory prayers on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Pray that God would destroy the works of Islamic terrorists in Nigeria. Pray for the downfall of the Communist Party in China that God would remove that totalitarian rule. Pray that Hindu extremists would be frustrated in their efforts to tear down churches in Pakistan and India. Pray that Christians would persevere amid these persecutions. But I think even here in America, we need to pray these prayers also. Christ commands us to love our enemies, but how does that fit with praying imprecatory prayers? Well, I think one reason why loving our enemies is so hard is because as human beings, we long to see justice done, right? How can we pray for their blessing when we know they deserve punishment, when, when they have committed injustice? Um, and that's precisely why we need these prayers. Uh, if you have been slandered, if you have been mistreated at work, if you have been hated by loved ones, for nothing wrong that you have done, but because of your faith. This is how you respond. Not by, by bearing the hurt, not by lashing out in revenge. No, by praying. Because as we pray these prayers, we entrust all of our fears, all of our pains, all of our anger to the God who judges justly. We're not taking matters into our own hands. No, we're confessing our need. And we're turning to the one God who is wise and powerful and loving and good enough to sort out all the complexities of our pain and of our oppression and, and who can bring about true justice. And as we, as we entrust all these things over to him, fully confident that he's going to bring it about, that frees us up to love our enemies, to forgive and to speak the hope of the gospel. You can love your enemies because you know that one day justice is coming. If you're not a Christian here today, I'm so glad that you're here to hear this. Um, <clears throat> you know, you're here at church. I'm guessing you probably do, don't, you're not aware of any sort of hatred for Christians in you. You might be wondering what, why all this talk about Christians being hated. Well, in the end... <clears throat> I hope. It's not because we are like jerks or, 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 or unlikable, you know, or weird. Uh, no, I, I think in the end, it's because of our message. That's why people hate Zion. It's because the message of Jesus is offensive to human pride. It's this message that we have all rebelled 
against God, that we have sinned, that rather than living under his good and loving rule, we've all decided to go our own way and, and live for ourselves. And therefore, having rejected God, we stand cursed. The curse that we see here in Psalm 129 rests on all of humanity. On judgment day, our best works will be utterly worthless and sin will produce a shameful harvest of death. From Hitler all the way to Mother Teresa, all of humanity is under the wrath of God and headed towards eternal punishment with no way out. But now here's the amazing twist. The Lord is righteous, yes, but the Lord is also gracious. He, in his love, sent his son into this world to take on our humanity, to bear our sin. He was condemned. His back was furrowed and our curse was laid on him. And he was put to death for us. Why? Because he loved us in order that we might go free. The righteous God made a way for sin to be forgiven. He didn't sweep sin under the rug. He he didn't change the rules. No, he provided a sacrifice. Through Jesus, his wrath against sin was poured out on his son there on the cross for sinners like you, for sinners like me. And now for those who will repent of their sins, if, if you will repent of your sins and turn to God by faith, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Jesus' righteousness will be given to you as a gift and you will be reconciled to God. Apart from Jesus, there is no other way to God. Yeah, that, that's offensive to this world too. They hate that. But there is no other way to God. There's no other way to be made right. Your, your sweet Christian grandmother cannot save you. Your good intentions cannot save you. Your best behavior cannot save you. Only by turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus can you be saved. At the end of the day, this is why Christians are uniquely hated. People hate being told that they cannot save themselves. People hate being told that they are going to hell and that they need a savior. But realize that if this message is true, then the most loving thing that Christians can do is to devote their lives in telling you, to telling you that message. Um, what a horrible thing it would be if we believed that hell was real and we didn't tell you about it. What a horrible thing it would be if we believed that Jesus was real and we didn't tell you about it. You know, after hearing a message like this, you might be thinking, why in the world would I want to become a Christian? Uh, Why would I want to join this band of hated pilgrims and suffer persecution? I'll tell you why. Because Zion is real. And in that heavenly city, that's where King Jesus dwells. And he loves you. And even while you curse him and turn your back on him, he has given his back for you. He has given his hands and his feet to be pierced for you. And he gives his life for you. Even now, his heart is full of love for you. No matter what you have done against him, there is no sin too horrible. There is no injustice that you've committed too evil. There is no shame too painful that he cannot forgive and that he cannot heal. Your king, this king, invites you to come. Even today, he holds out his hands in love and welcomes you into his kingdom of joy. Why would you want to join this band of pilgrims? Because we are going to see the king who made us and who loves us. And he is more precious than anything that this world has to offer. And if you have more questions about what it would mean to to follow him, I would love to talk to you after the service. The people around you would love to talk to you after the service. Henson Baptist Church, we are on this pilgrimage. I'm no longer traveling with this band of pilgrims. <laughs> I'm with another band down in Kansas City. 
you have seen many dear brothers and sisters come and go. Um, you've seen many new pilgrims come and join you in this journey. Praise God. But in the end, we're all headed to the same place. We're all headed to Zion with furrowed backs and hopeful hearts. Cling to God's righteousness. Pray to the one who can bring justice. Love one another deeply. Amid persecution, this is how we know that God's enemies have not prevailed. I can't wait until the day when we are all standing within Zion's gates. The music will be like nothing we've ever heard before. The reunion will be unspeakably joyful. And every tear will be wiped away. And we will see our king face to face. And on that day, we will bless one another, saying, may the Lord's blessing be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. And before I lead us in prayer, take a moment now just to reflect on what you've heard and and even respond to God in your own words. Our Heavenly Father, you are righteous. Lord, you remain ever faithful. And so, Lord, we turn to you and we pray that you would sustain us, that you would preserve your people, preserve our hope in the gospel, prepare us to suffer. Lord, that our faith might shine all the brighter, that Christ might be glorified, that the gospel might be known, and that more would join us on this pilgrimage to Zion. Oh Lord, sustain us, we pray. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would journey with them, that you would preserve them, and that we would see one another in the end. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.